0: You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. Hello, everyone. I know it's the end of the quarter and the end of the year, and it's so fabulous to see all the hardcore participants, and I'm sure we'll see all the stragglers coming in. I am Tina Seelig, the Executive Director of the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. And it is my honor to be the host today for the Draper fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Lecture Series. This is hosted by STVP and by BASIS and brought to you by SCPD with the generous sponsorship of Draper fisher Jurvetson. And that's a mouthful, and I won't test all of you. But uh, today is a very special day. First, I have some announcements. Um, there is a very special event afterwards. The e-challenge and the social e-challenge are going to be announcing the winners. Now, if any of you know about these two competitions, these have been going on all year long, and the winners are going to be announced this afternoon, uh, this evening, at 6 o'clock. So following this, at uh, Cubberley Auditorium, if anyone knows where that is. If you don't, please ask Josh here because he can tell you where it is, right on campus, center of campus. And it should be great. There are some several keynote speakers. And then you'll get to hear pitches from the winning teams. And they'll be announcing the winners. So please don't miss it. That's at 6 to 8 this evening. So any other announcements? (laughs) Without further ado, I want to welcome our guests. We have Deborah Dunn and Randy Commissar. Now, let me just start with Randy first. Many of you know Randy. Randy is an incredibly valuable member of the Stanford Technology Ventures program team. He's an adjunct professor. And he has had an exciting past. I'm certainly not going to go through it. Um, It would take the entire time to list uh, his experiences. But uh, he just took on a very exciting new job as a partner at Kleiner Perkins. So welcome, Randy. Thank you very much. We also have Deborah Dunn, who besides all of her accomplishments, also happens to be uh, Randy's better half. (laughs) Uh, How many years have you guys been married? Is it uh, 18 years? 18 years? Oh,
1: (laughs) god. Starting with a stumper.
0: (laughs) if you know your anniversary you get an extra prize anyway deborah is fabulous she has been at hp for 22 years and is actually going through a very very interesting transition as randy goes back to work deborah has decided to uh, step out of the workforce for a while so this will be a very interesting discussion but before we start i just want to tell you i had the most wonderful opportunity of traveling with randy and deborah last november the three of us went to Santiago, Chile to represent Stanford at a conference of entrepreneurship educators. Within the first 24 hours, <laughs> we ended up stranded in Atlanta and soaked to the bone in a drenching rain, ended up down to our birthday suits in the bathroom de- drying our shoes. Just us. Just us, right. <laughs> that But uh, anyway, the point is, it was quite a bonding experience, and as a result, I think they trust me to interview them for this uh, for this talk. So, without further ado, I am going to start out with Deborah. Now, Deborah, in the last twenty-two years—twenty-two years—I don't even—you can't be that old. In the last twenty-two years, you have been at HP in so many different roles. You've been in marketing. You've been in manufacturing. You've been in human resources. You've done global citizenship. This is really fascinating. Are there some key characteristics and skills that you needed across all of these different roles? So I would focus
2: on a couple of key areas that I think do link my entire HP career together. The first which sounds kind of trite and obvious is leadership skills which I would define as the ability to get people to follow me in a wide variety of directions. Um, Also fundamentally the ability to communicate ideas, vision, direction. So those aspects of leadership are particularly important. Maybe the next level up has been change management. Almost every job I've had at HP has involved some kind of turmoil or change. And so the ability to come into a situation, find a new direction, that was significantly different than the current path and then enroll the key members of the team to get out of the path that they were on and head in a new direction, I think has been a really key theme. Um, So those are probably the two major things that I would comment on.
0: Great. Okay, now we turn to the exact opposite situation or complementary. (laughs) No, because Randy, instead of having many different roles in the same organization, you have had the same role, CEO, in a lot of organizations. Now, could you give us some sort of perspective on that? When you take, um, is it the same set of skills that basically are used in each of these companies? Or um, is it something that one has to look at, each situation is very, very different?
1: yeah I think doing what I do, which is entrepreneur i can 't understand what she does <laughs> I mean working in one company for twenty two years is is just mind boggling to me um, i it, doing what basically what i 've done is i 've just moved from um, interesting opportunity to interesting opportunity for twenty two years and brought with me a set of skills that have sort of grown um, in various dimensions. I think leadership is clearly one of the most important skills that uh, that I have sort of um, assembled over the last 22 years and bring to the various different functions that I've I've been in. And I've been in in operating roles other than CEO role as well, so I worked myself into that. Um, I also think uh, a a comfort with change. Um, Almost every time I've taken a new role, I've had an incredibly steep learning curve. It's a new industry, it's a new company, it's a new business model. And um, I think that there is a particular sort of psychological syndrome, it's probably treatable, um, that uh, for uh, certain people just look for those, those very steep learning curves. And I'm very comfortable with that. I like it. I seek them out. I'm doing it right now. Um, and so the, the ability to sort of not just be a change agent, but to be, in fact, changeable, to be the flexibility, the adaptability. Um, to be able to move from situation to situation. I think what I bring to all of them is sort of uh, the uh, good judgment, um, good leadership, and the uh, sort of what I call sort of a generalist approach to education. When I, when I started my career, the mantra was you had to be specialized. Um, in the 60s and 70s, it was efficiency and specialization, and, and, and it was very important that people specialize in various um, different functions or different professions. Uh, and um, and I've never been that way. I've always been a generalist, and I think that um, the application of that to Silicon Valley and uh, entrepreneurship is, uh, is is pretty directly applicable. So being a generalist, leadership skills, being very comfortable with change, I think are the probably the three characteristics that that I bring from from opportunity to opportunity.
0: Great. So there's some interesting parallels there of uh, being comfortable with uncertainty and change and being able to learn really, really fast.
1: 22 years in one place, I'm comfortable in this. For- well, <laughs> okay, can I have a rebuttal? <laughs>
0: yeah, you want a rebuttal? I need a
1: rebuttal.
2: <laughs> because I think it's important to understand, especially at the stage that many of you are, that in a, in a big company like HP, which is now 150,000 people doing business in 170 countries, and historically, many, many discrete businesses that operated pretty independently, You could be in that same broad context and yet have many, many, many radically different jobs, which I have done. So I think 22 years in one place kind of over-trivializes the
0: the reality. Well, so let's let's put it in context. Okay, you've been at, I know you're probably only 25, but 22 years um, at HP. Let's put it in context. What did you do beforehand that brought you there, and what do you plan to do afterwards? How how does this fit into your sort of career path? Okay, that's that's an interesting question. I actually
2: went to Brown with lots of social change energy, and I did an independent concentration at Brown, which was actually in... (laughs) Classical and Marxist theories of economics and social organization.
1: You will not find that in her bio on the HP website. You will you not will find not. that in her bio.
2: However it is, on my <laughs> diploma in Latin. And when I graduated from Brown, I had done a thesis on co-ops, consumer co-ops. I really wanted to work in that space. I was interested in co-ops because I thought they were a democratic form of economic endeavor and I joined a nonprofit organization working with food and housing co-ops all over the US and Canada. I did that for a couple of years got fairly quickly frustrated with many things about the nonprofit world Um, there was some interesting stuff going on there but it was a small pond with a fair amount of dysfunction in many aspects of it and so i moved then geographically and spent a year working in government I worked in Massachusetts in the state government doing energy conservation work in low-income communities. Again, interesting work, um, fun to engage with low-income communities. I really liked the energy conservation work, but the whole government bureaucratic environment made me crazy. There was a group of like 20 people who would lock themselves in a room for two hours every day at lunch and play cards, and their attitude was we've been here a long time. We're going to be here a lot longer than this young whippersnapper boss. We can do what we want to do. That really kind of exemplified the environment, and I didn't have a lot of patience for that. Was that your CETA position? Was that No, my um, co-op work was CETA. That's important to realize.
1: CETA was basically a, a, I don't know, you can describe it.
2: It was a government job training program. It was really not intended for Brown graduates, (laughs) but my first job was a CETA job. So I was paid $8,000 a year by an organization that was subsidized by the government because I was getting training. Um, All the employees were CETA employees. They were from Oberlin and Brown and a whole bunch of other places, which may be why CETA doesn't
1: exist now.
2: Um, But after... Doing both of those things: working nonprofits, working in government, really looking at what was happening where in the environment, I decided, particularly in this country, most of the action was in business. So if I wanted to have an impact, I needed to be in business. And based on that, I decided to go back to business school, got into Harvard, went to Harvard. When I graduated, I was looking for a company that had a couple key attributes. One, I really wanted to work in a company that had some values and beliefs that I could resonate with. And at that point in time, HP was getting a lot of visibility for the HP way, for the values of Hewlett and Packard, for being a company that was not just about making a profit, but that was also about making a contribution. And that really appealed to me. So graduated from Harvard, interviewed with HP, got in, thinking I would go there for a couple years to get some legitimacy given that my resume up to that point was a little scattered um, and found HP compelling in many many reasons, found that in fact my values did resonate with the values of the organization at that point and it was a place where you could do all kinds of things based on your motivation and capability which led me to take a huge range of jobs so I did work in manufacturing in marketing in HR I led one of the divisions I moved to corporate I drove big initiatives like the spin-out of Agilent from HP helped Carly come into the organization drove a lot of change and then ultimately I'd been spending a little bit of time on this area that we call e-inclusion. E-inclusion is about figuring out how technology can accelerate economic development. And we were doing some really interesting work, starting to do some work in Africa and some other places, um, putting some people on the ground, as well as making some contributions, putting some money in the game. And when we did the compact merger, Carly decided we now had the scale and scope to let me focus 100% of my time on this whole citizenship area, which was perfect for me because I was a point in my career where, first of all, I had the broad business background and experience to be very credible in the organization. So I could lead this field of global citizenship and not be viewed as you know, some flaky person who came up through tangential aspects of the organization but could work with the various people in the business on their issues in a language that they understood driving HP's citizenship agenda. And it was kind of perfect for me that having gone into business basically with the premise that business could be a driver for social change that I would end my career at HP in a job which was all about driving corporate responsibility, driving global impact, utilizing HP's broad assets. And that's what I've been doing for the last three or four years and decided now it's really time in my life to pursue that set of objectives from a broader platform than a single company. So I'm going to take a little breather here. Um, recharge my battery and then possibly invent some new platform or find a platform
0: that will really let me do that. Fabulous. It's an inspiring story. So, uh, Randy, Mm. now, you did something very different. Mm. You have been out of the traditional workforce for Mm. 10 years. Mm. I know you've been working really, really hard with startup companies, but really on your terms. All of a sudden, you've decided to back drive, sort of dive back into yeah. a very traditional role in a very uh, well respected, uh, but probably much more structured environment. Mm. Why did you decide to do this?
1: It was a hard decision. It was not an easy decision. When, uh, when John Doerr came to me and suggested that, um, that they would like to change the way in which they work with companies uh, and bring me on as a, a change agent inside. Kleiner Perkins and, and Venture Capital. Um, I was um, flattered, but, um, but very uncertain. Um, from my standpoint, the work I've been doing to that, to that point in time, I think, was very fulfilling. I was teaching here, winter term, working with great students, many of which are in the, in the room today. I uh, was uh, working as a virtual CEO incubating variety of companies out there. I was working in social venturing work, and had, uh, worked on three significant social ventures. Um, but, there were, but there were limitations. And the limitations were, number one, I generally did not have a group of people that I could go to and work with sort of intimately as a team around these issues. Each one was a separate group of people. Um, the other thing was platform. Um, I was my own platform, and uh, while I was relatively effective, the ability to truly pull things together and get things done was limited by the size of my platform. Um, So when when Kleiner Perkins suggested that I consider being a partner, what appealed to me were three particular things about the job. Number one, the opportunity to work with a great team of people. I, I think they're amongst the smartest group of investors Um, that you'll find in Silicon Valley, and they share my values around innovation. Uh, Number two was the possibility of having a much bigger platform and therefore much greater impact in being able to do what I do. It's just as much work to do something small as to do something big. And so the opportunity to apply myself to bigger problems um, was something that was very interesting to me. Um, And the third was a sense of mission. Uh, There's a real sense of at Kleiner Perkins today that innovation should solve real problems and that um, we should be focusing on how innovation can make change. And that mission very much marries my mission. And so it felt very comfortable for me. But there are people here like Greg Steichletter over here who were great advisors to me through that process to make stayed honest with myself and my values in that process. And so for me, it's an experiment at this point. Um, I don't know how long I will work in a venture capital firm. Hopefully it will be a good long time. Um, but it's really important that I be able to continue to serve my mission, um, work with great people, and that I have great impact because there are costs to it. Uh, the structure and formality are part of it.
0: Great. Well, best of luck.
1: Thank you. Yeah, Can't <laughs> wait to watch
0: this adventure unfold. So. Deborah, I know that the two of you are both very passionate about social entrepreneurship and really making a difference in the world. How do you see yourself using the skills that you have polished in a traditional company in a potentially nonprofit or venture that is focused more on social entrepreneurship than a traditional business?
2: Well, first of all, over the past several years as I've been really focusing on these issues, it's become clear to me that some of the big social problems that I care about, the inequities between rich and poor, a lot of the environmental issues, a lot of the issues that the nonprofit world is currently addressed, cannot be effectively tackled without truly deep collaboration between business, nonprofit organizations, and in many cases government. And so a knowledge of the business environment really helps drive a level of collaboration that goes beyond, you know, give us some money and we'll put your name on our next event or campaign, which is frankly the level at which much collaboration is happening today. The second issue is I think if you look at a lot of nonprofit organizations that exist today trying to drive social mission, they really lack some of the core skills that enable you to get things done effectively. And there are a bunch of reasons for that. Companies have tended to invest a lot in developing people, in helping people understand how to manage projects, how to manage meetings, how to do a whole bunch of things which are about efficiently driving organizations to accomplish clearly defined goals. That kind of rigor, discipline, those skill sets are in unfortunately short supply in the nonprofit world. And so I think bringing those kinds of capabilities and that kind of perspective to the solving of these social problems can be enormously impactful.
0: I'm cleaning up the table. You imagine what our house looks like. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I know what the video is going to look like if I don't clean up the table. Anyway, okay. So Randy, that's great. And you know what? I think it's so amazing. I think you will be able to take these skills and really make a huge difference in whatever venture you choose to get involved with, which is fabulous. Now, Randy, you have an interest in social responsibility, and here you're going into a very traditional Mm. environment. How do you think that traditional companies can address some of these really important social issues?
1: Well, I think, first of all, I see the entrepreneurial spirit and the the, uh, pursuit of innovation as um, very consistent with the new models for social venturing that we see out there, the idea that Social ventures are um, run with a set of business disciplines that they are self-sustaining rather than constantly looking for philanthropic help, Um, that they measure their impact in ways that uh, are very similar to the ways in which companies measure success of product, and that the skills that are coming to to those companies are rigorous skills, not the same sorts of skills that we saw 20 years ago largely in charitable organizations. So we're seeing the model change and we're seeing entrepreneurship and innovation be key features of those models, which is very consistent, of course, with my interests. Venture capital can can be a part of that. I mean, one of the things that Kleiner Perkins is most proud of is its involvement, for instance, in creating the New School Funds, which invests substantially in Things like charter schools and other tools, technologies, and, um, and opportunities to test and improve the public education system. Uh, that was started by a group of uh, partners at Kleiner Perkins. It does not operate within Kleiner Perkins, but it fundamentally is a sister organization to Kleiner Perkins. Um, Kleiner Perkins is also very much involved in microfinance. It's one of the areas that we look at. Uh, on a global level, in terms of how we can be involved both as individual partners, but also as a firm. There's money to be made in microfinance. And the fact that there's money to be made in creating social value is a good thing, not a bad thing. 20 years ago that was considered a bad thing. If they were making money, then you couldn't be serving the social need. I think today we have different models and different ways of thinking about that. Um, And then the sorts of companies that we invest in. I mean, we look to invest in companies that can make significant social differences. You might say to yourself, um, how the heck does, you know, Google made so much money for everybody, um, how, it, how does that fit the model? Well, Google's probably had, had a bigger contribution to social change in the last ten years of any, any new company that's been formed. The way in which people access information, share information, the processes that they're going through now to bring all of the libraries online and be searchable and um, and be usable around the world by people who have no access to books. This, this, is, this is social change done by a for-profit business. And so the mission of the companies you invest in is also important. Um, so I think that it is consistent. And in my experience, you know, um, coincidentally, I went to Brown, coincidentally <laughs> I also worked in uh, the public interest area before going into um, into the world of private business, I worked uh, running a community development program in the city of Providence for a number of years when I graduated from Brown, and then later actually worked um, with uh, one of nader's organization, as did, did Deborah, uh, and uh, worked. Uh, uh, I was uh, I worked on, against the nuclear power and uh, against Reagan in, in 1980, <laughs> um, and so. Uh, but I also came away with a sense that. The organizations we were working with at at that time, um, while they had great social objectives, weren't very effective. And they weren't stimulating and challenging and interesting places for people who were ambitious to try and make change to work. They were using the wrong tools. They were using tools that, in my mind, were proving to be less and less relevant as business became more and more relevant. Business is the most effective tool for social change if we use it the right way. If we seek significant missions, if we carry integrity into the process, if we measure the value we bring not simply by the bottom line but by the value that's created for others, Um, business is the tool. It's the most effective tool and I think it's important that like-minded people go to business and bring their integrity, their values into business to, um, to make those sorts of things um, more effective, more impactful.
0: Fabulous. So I have just a couple more questions for, that I'm going to ask both of you the same question, and then I'm going to open it up to the audience, okay? So start thinking about your questions. You have a couple minutes to prepare. Um, so now, one of the things that I always talk about in my class with my students is that balance between creativity and control. And you know, when you look at a career, one has that same question. How much do you map it out and sort of you know become a fire and forget missile? Okay, now I'm gonna to go to business school, then I'm gonna go into investment banking, then I'm gonna go become a this and a that. And how much do you let things just fall in your lap? And so I'd love to hear your philosophy of that, both of you, that that question between mapping things out and being very much in control versus being a bit of a leaf in the wind and taking opportunities that uh, present themselves. So,
2: Yeah, so I guess building on my earlier comments about the whole path of my career, I mean I guess from some perspective this is all very logical and I started out wanting to do the kind of work that I ended up doing at HP and frankly never could have imagined having such an incredible platform in business to do it but all of the steps along the way were totally unanticipated I certainly never thought well I'm going to spend this amount of time in manufacturing and this amount of time in marketing and then maybe I ought to do some general management and I mean I don't think you could possibly map out the type of path that I have had over the last beyond 22 years the whole course of my career so for me I have had I think a lot of clarity around ultimately what I'm about as a person the kinds of impact that I want to have the way I want to show up and be in whatever workplace I'm in but specific decisions about jobs have been made within that framework but largely opportunistically. Um, Using a couple key guidelines, I've always pursued things that really somehow touched my passion because I've had the premise that if I was working on things that I was energized by, then I would excel And if I excelled, that would lead to more opportunities. And that's really proven to be true for me. So it wasn't so important that the path be logical as it was that I didn't end up being stuck in jobs that I really didn't enjoy and consequently didn't do well at because that that could have been a dead end in a number of very significant ways. The other thing that's been important to me is that I move often enough. I'm someone who thrives on the steep part of the learning curve and so sort of for the same reason it's important for me to be learning new things having an opportunity to be energized and stimulated in whatever role so that I can continue to perform and excel and be excited about what I'm doing and so those have been guidelines that have been consistent and that have enabled me to evaluate opportunities as they came along and decide which ones that I would accept and which ones that I would walk past.
1: Hmm.
0: Fabulous. So, Randy. Well, obviously, my that?
1: career and life have been just extremely well-planned and executed. <laughs> um,
0: Can you give me the recipe?
1: Yeah. I mean, it only makes sense in the rear-view mirror, you know. It, it's, it's interesting because I, I just uh, spoke at GSB, what, two weeks ago, and you know, I get the same question all the time. I was speaking about my book, and, and I get the same question all the time, which is, you know, you... You, you, have this, you make this case for passion and for, and for, not, for not sort of um, taking the conventional path. But, you know, you became a lawyer. You went to law school. You became a lawyer. You ran a couple of companies. It served you pretty well to be, quote, unquote, um, conventional in, in many of these aspects. And um, a couple of things to say about that. I mean, the times I've made the biggest mistakes in my life is when I tried to plan, like planning to go to law school. That was a five-year detour in my life, um, and the, the, it, while it's hard to understand, particularly for those of you just graduating from Stanford, um, it, it may be hard to sort of realize that fundamentally life happens to you. You know, you've planned your lives pretty well to this point. You know, you've gotten good grades, you've gotten you've gone to good universities, you you've got incredible opportunities. Um, the, the unfortunate fact of life is, it's out of your control. If you're going to live a good life, it's going to be because you can adapt to that. It's going to be because you can make the most of it. It's because you know how to make chicken salad. Right? Because otherwise you're going to be, it's really unfortunate what you're going to be eating. <laughs> and what I've noticed in my life is that opportunities Happen, not by accident. It's like you know. It's like saying success um, happens to those who are you know who are prepared. It doesn't happen by accident. It's happened because I have been very consistent, like Deborah, in being who I am, in expressing what I care about, in being true to my values and principles in my choices, and. What has what served, served me pretty well in this process is, in every case, I've generally chosen to be involved with the, the highest integrity, highest quality people I can find. And I've definitely, I've definitely looked for the source of the richest opportunities I could find, knowing that in every single instance, something else will happen. Another door will open. And at this point in my life, the thing that I'm now very confident in is if you are true to yourself and, make, and consistently make high-quality decisions, that each of those decisions will lead somewhere. There's a sense, and I, and I do this a lot with my students, especially at the end of the term. Everybody comes up, what am I going to do with my life? I mean, really, the really question is, what are you going to do next year? Right? You know, and um, and, and everybody sort of worry, They fret the decisions. What if I make a mistake? Well, you will. You'll make plenty. And the real question then is, how are you going to live a satisfying good life when life is full of mistakes? And how are you going to express yourself and realize your potential and be satisfied and fulfilled in an environment where you don't have control? Because that's life. People say to me, how do you become a venture capitalist? I don't know. Somebody asked me. People say to me, how do you become a professor at Stanford? I have no clue. Somebody asked me. How do you write a book? I don't know. Somebody called me up. I don't know these things. I never planned to do any of them. But when those doors opened, I looked around and asked myself the same question I always do. Is this a unique opportunity? Is it consistent with what I believe and care about? And can I I take it someplace interesting? And if I can, I go through the door. And then 10 more doors open. And I just went through a door this last two months, and we'll see where it leads to. This is, believe me, when I say this and I put myself in your shoes, particularly you students, I don't know how I would have reacted to this information 25 years ago. (laughs) It's kind of earth-shattering to know that you don't have any control, isn't it? It's kind of earth-shattering to know that life's going to be full of mistakes. And and, and and a lot of you will ignore it and just try to plan and execute anyway. Good, do it and learn and grow in the process. But my life only makes sense in the rearview mirror, and I have no clue what comes next
0: you know what I want to chime in with something my very wise father mm-hmm. always says which is the harder I work
1: the luckier L- I, I get <laughs> there you go
0: in fact it's wonderful Sort of. in fact it might be fun for students to sort of write down uh, what they, where they think they'll be in yeah. 20 years or 22 <laughs> right. years and look back in 22 years yeah. and sort of see how true it actually was so. yeah. well um, I want to I can ask you a thousand more questions but I want to leave with one final question before I open it up to the audience and that is and maybe you've already answered it. Um, Do you have any parting advice? I mean here it is the end of the Mm -hmm. academic year. A lot of these students are going off to graduate. Any parting Mm. advice for a graduating student from Stanford University? Well this
2: really highlights a couple points that I already made but I think they're worth highlighting. The first is you're graduating from Stanford don't stop learning because Learning is what keeps you vibrant and alive. So keep looking for opportunities in every aspect of your life, certainly in your professional life, that keep you always on the learning curve. And the second, which is in some ways complementary to that, is I would spend a fair amount of time thinking about what you really enjoy and are motivated by and try to find opportunities that let you express the things that tap your passion and feed who you really are and sometimes that seems really hard to do it seems very inconsistent with the kind of opportunities that are in the Career Center and the kind of jobs that are being interviewed for but I think, ultimately, in most cases, you can find those intersections and it's really worth doing that. Right, Randy?
1: Yeah, um, fear is a really bad emotion. Um, It's not very constructive. And uh, I think we find ourselves sort of anxious and worried many times when we have to make difficult decisions in our lives. Passion is a really empowering emotion. Um, it it, it pulls you places where you really want to go. And I, I think that as you begin to look at your choices that you have to make in your life, it's important to realize when fear trumps passion and to come to grips with that and get rid of the fear and go back to the passion. It's important to understand that life has risks and you take chances. And it's really important in leaving Stanford to realize that you're just half-formed, that you've got to go rub up against the world, that the most important person for you to meet out there is yourself. And that the more that you rub up against the world, the more that you challenge yourself, the more that you learn about yourself, the more that you can stay true to yourself and can make a difference. And I think the the, the thing that I always tell my class last day is never shrink from making a difference. You'll have scarce opportunities in your life to do it. Jump in with both feet and make a difference wherever you can.
0: Great. Well, this was really inspiring. I'd love to open it up to the audience. I'm sure you're bubbling over with questions. Okay, one in the back, please pick up the uh, microphone with the red hat. Do you have a microphone?
3: Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so I actually think that there are many forces that have been ratcheting up over the last several years to force companies to realize that while particularly in the U.S. we have really emphasized the primacy of the shareholder as the most important stakeholder. For a company there are other really important stakeholders that need to be paid attention to. Those include employees, those include customers, those include the communities that you're part of, and through regulatory action, even here, companies are being forced to pay more attention through Sarbanes-Oxley to issues of ethics and conduct because various stakeholders have become, frankly, appalled by the behavior that they've seen in high-profile corporations driven by an overemphasis not only on generating maximum profit, but also generating maximum personal gain. Uh, I think those kind of corrective mechanisms are having an impact in many arenas on companies today. The level of regulatory activity is higher around the world than we have ever seen in my 22 years at HP. And so all of that has been driving a greater focus among many companies on thinking about their responsibilities beyond profitability and being transparent about their behavior in areas of environmental performance and social performance. Um, So do I think it is imperative that the structure of corporations be changed to drive more responsible behavior? No, I actually think there are other stakeholders who have a lot of power that they don't exercise very effectively today. The most vivid example is consumers. Hmm. We're all consumers. I mean, I think consuming is essentially a political act. Hmm. With my dollars, I make decisions every day about the kinds of organizations and the kinds of behavior that I want to support. But we tend to disconnect those decisions in many cases, sometimes because it's hard to get the information. So greater transparency makes that more possible, but I think, again, as consumers, as, um, as employees, the employees at HP have been quite vocal in recent years about their concern about having an impact, their concern about environmental performance and also many of us own stocks and have the opportunity to voice our concerns to companies as shareholders as do the socially responsible investment funds and the pension funds who are getting more and more vocal in these areas. I think it's possible to move the needle significantly without fundamentally changing the structure of corporations.
0: Did you want
1: to chime in? I think Deb said it just right. I think it's really, I do think there are alignment issues. So I don't want to, I don't want to pretend there aren't. Um, I think there are forces to counteract those. I think that everybody in this room has the opportunity as a consumer to have much more impact than you believe you have. Um, and, and, I, and I echo, I, I, it's interesting you use the term, you know, the consumption is a political act. I always use that term as well. I probably <laughs> learned it. Um, but, uh, but it is a political act. And if we think about our consumption and our investment as political acts, we can help with alignment. What's fascinating, for instance, is taking a look at the Kyoto Treaty, right? Kyoto Treaty, we don't sign. Who are the major proponents in the United States today of compliance with the Kyoto Treaty? Large multinational Large corporations. Why? Why? because they're subject to them outside the United States and they don't want to give their competitors who are domestic-based an advantage over them in not having to comply. Little things like that make big differences. So we should, we should never give up a regulatory and administrative stance on, on business. Business is a construct driven by the bottom line. But the bottom line can be influenced by consumers, by investors, and by regulation.
3: Yeah, my question is uh, to Deborah's point about uh, the social, uh, the
2: non-profit uh, environments that you work in being somewhat uh, dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh,
3: they, uh, it's, when they're talking about it, it's sort of like a, it's sort of like a sympathetic mm. uh, exercise. Mm-hmm. That there's not much of like mm. a, a, a discussion or an emphasis when you're, when you're saying, when you're talking about a social entrepreneurship in a, in a, develop, in a developing economy to sort of preserve and enhance that, the competitive performance that you see in a, in a business environment.
2: Right. Yeah, it's a very good question. So I think that one of the reasons that the kind of rigor that you see in business hasn't existed in the nonprofit world, there hasn't been a lot of transparency. There hasn't been competition. Um, transparency helps fuel competition. I mean, arguably, nonprofits compete for donor Most of them are donor funded, but the types of information available to help a donor choose between different nonprofits in a particular area is pretty limited today. There is a new genre of organizations emerging under this banner of social entrepreneurship, which I think is very embryonic. I think there's a lot of evolution that needs to take place for it to really mature and have a significant impact. But, encouragingly, with that drive toward sustainable organizations with business models that make sense even though they are focused on a social mission that are driven by entrepreneurial energy. There is a real focus on what are your goals, what are your metrics, how are you transparent around those things and so one of the things that I am most optimistic about is that if we could really develop a full ecosystem around these entrepreneurial enterprises with social mission like the whole ecosystem that exists around entrepreneurial business enterprises I think there's an opportunity for radical transformation in the nonprofit world because frankly I'm not optimistic this may be unduly harsh on my part but I'm not optimistic that the existing group of nonprofit organizations will transform themselves and adopt some of the approaches and practices that we're talking about. I do think though that there's a big appetite. There are some significant foundations that are trying to help drive development in this area. I'm actually on the board of the Skoll Foundation. Jeff Skoll, who was one of the eBay founders, has funded Um, already to the tune of half a billion dollars, this foundation to support this emerging area of social entrepreneurship. So uh, it's early days, but I think there are encouraging signs that there could be a whole new class of organizations that would marry social mission with accountability, competition, uh, some of the kind of rigor that I think has fueled progress in the business arena.
0: Great. Fabulous, another question, over here, yes.
1: Well, I, I mean, I've I got clear examples of that, so I mean, for instance, um, I've been involved in three significant social ventures in the last three years, one of which is Global Giving, which Deb's been involved with as well, which is actually doing quite well right now. For a couple of years it did very badly. It's a for-profit venture for essentially an eBay for direct contributions into global development projects around the world. Give $100 to build a girl's latrine at a school in India, for instance. Um, and their goal was to actually make money, to be self sustainable by building a small carry into the process. We would get billions of dollars be given by, corp- by, by corporate employees and others and take a small amount of those to continue to expand the base and the infrastructure. We spent two years trying to get uh, private financing for it. It was impossible, absolutely impossible. Um, we ended up getting financed by philanthropy. Now, the Skoll Foundation, before Deborah was even involved, actually financed it. Um, anecdotally, I was in a meeting with them asking for money and at one point pointed out to them that at least with this model I didn't have to quote-unquote panhandle every year to get additional cash and was almost thrown out of the room. Um, just to only show you sort a of new way and old way of thinking about things. That's one example. Another example is Ignite Innovations, a project that actually came out of Stanford that I've been involved with for a year. In fact, I just got off the phone with Matt Scott. I don't know if Matt showed up or not. There he is. And Ignite Innovations, in fact Matt, if you want to talk about this, Matt's a perfect person to talk to about this. Ignite Innovations also started with the idea, they're selling um, the solar lanterns in India uh, for people off the grid. And the idea, of course, was to be a profitable business, fundamentally trying to transform people's lives by giving them light. The, the difficulty in financing that has been extreme. I don't know, Matt, Matt can certainly tell you interesting stories. But we've tried to raise money from outside financiers, financiers, and I'll just as an example, we'll tell you that we talked to one well-known financier in Silicon Valley who said, "If this is for profit, I'm going to drive some very hard terms with you. Right? You're going to see their valuation is going to be low, and I'm, you know it's very tough." He said, "On the other hand, I'll write you a check if it's for not-for-profit." That sort of mindset in, uh, in, uh, amongst investors and the institutional investors like charities, etc., is very, very difficult and slow to change. So those, I think those are big, big challenges. I think that they're being changed 1% at a time. I think you know, Matt's efforts on Ignite Innovation, the most important reason for Ignite to succeed, in my mind, is not just because it's going to bring light to people's lives off the grid, but fundamentally because it's going to establish these models that we can begin to perpetuate and to solve these sorts of problems with.
2: Let me add to that just a little. This is an example of what I meant when I said there, there are a lot of holes in the ecosystem around these kinds of ventures today. So as Randy points out, there really is no access to capital for an organization that has a profitable business model but not necessarily the same level of profit goals as a classic full speed ahead business and there are little things that are being addressed like how do you help develop the skills and capabilities to drive these ventures, some people are working on that, how do you connect them together, how do you connect them to business organizations, but big areas like what's the capital structure, who's going to fund these things, what are the right talent pools and how do you tap into them, those pieces I think are still very, very sketchy, but I actually think it is feasible that a whole new sector can essentially be created here. It's going to require some regulatory changes. Tax law is an impediment today. I mean, there are a lot of people who are willing to write a check because they can write it off their taxes. If they fund it as a for-profit venture, they get none of that kind of preference. So the cost of doing it is a very different thing. Uh, The administration, this current administration, which I am personally not a big fan of, they have, however, been quite interested in the idea of sustainable models for doing this kind of work. So I think there is an opening and there is some dialogue happening with development organizations as well as some aspects of government around how do you, how do you close some of these gaps. So I remain cautiously optimistic.
0: Great, lots more questions, the woman right here.
1: Yes. And you give it more to come. Yes. You're going for a venture firm with fresh products. <laughs> what would you tell a partner would have done to get his mojo back? Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I mean it, it you know, the the thing that I think that is um, distinguishes certain venture groups from others is their ability and commitment to building the business, not just investing in the business. And I tend to see that a lot of the investors who, um, first of all, had the bad luck of investing in the years between 2000 and 2004. It was just a bad time um, to invest. But also, a lot of the investors who have Walked away from the venture business or been pushed out of the venture business in the last several years um, have have not been people I think who have been roll up your sleeves sort of company builders uh, and I think that makes for more effective investing in innovation, which is the role of, of venture capital i i am um, as I look around our firm for instance i 'm in, extremely impressed with the savvy and the Uh, instincts of the people who have been doing it for a number of years and I'm learning a ton by by watching the way they approach things. Um, On the other hand, I think that it's very important that venture capital constantly get new blood for new perspectives. Um, I wasn't brought in to be like everybody else in my firm. I was brought in, and if they did that would have been a big mistake. Um, (laughs) I was brought in to be exactly who I am and to approach these opportunities exactly the way that I do, which is very hands-on, very intimate with the team, very mentor, mentor and coach-like in the way that I approach things, and to try to really build value in the process. Um, but venture capital is a difficult business, and it takes a while to get your instincts. Uh, it takes a while to be successful. Um, And uh, I think that uh, over time, you know, some people will fall out and some people fall in. I think it's a natural part of the process, just like it's natural for a lot of these ventures to fail. One last question. I guess you can go first. No, no, you go first this time. I just went.
2: I know, but I've gone first on all the other questions.
1: But I just (laughs) went. I was the last (laughs) question.
2: Maybe.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, do you think it's different than any other couple? I mean, do you think being an entrepreneurial couple, we are both dealing with these? uh, I'm giving you time to think, you guys. I'm helping you out.
1: Well, I mean, it's clear to me that Deb has been um, rock solid for me in what has otherwise been an extremely uh, light-footed uh, career in life, right? I mean, um, her centeredness, her sense, natural sense of balance um, is, um, is a fact of sort of a force of nature in our home. And, um, and it has kept me um, from spinning out of orbit many, many, many times in my life. It has the reinforcement of values. I mean, you know, obviously our experiences in, from, from, from just uh, from a, what, what our business cars look like are very different. But, but the shared values, I mean, are pretty darn obvious. And the reinforcement of those values is really important. I mean, we live in a place where it's easy to get distracted It's easy to get distracted by greed, fame, power, keep going with the list. Um, To have somebody in your life who constantly is reinforcing you're doing the right thing, that is always there to support you in making a hard decision that may be against every analytical principle that you could apply, but is fundamentally wrong, not right to help, to have somebody there in your life like that has been, has made all the difference. So, um, I think the shared values, the shared sense of passion, enthusiasm for life, um, and, and nevertheless, the different, the different psychology. I mean, I tend to be fairly animated and, uh, and changeable and, uh, uh, and Deb is very solid and centered, and I think it has allowed us to both complement and uh, and and also supplement each other in the things that are important
2: but i 'm also animated
1: <laughs> <laughs> not compared to me <laughs> so I,
2: I would definitely echo a lot of the things that Rand said in terms of the criticality of shared values and supporting each other in doing very different things because obviously our paths have had similarities but they've also had difference and I think there has always been, Randy has always been able to appreciate why I'm doing the things that I'm doing and to be very supportive of that. The other thing that's been incredibly helpful and valuable to me is that living with Randy who is very animated um, but also is always out there doing interesting things on a pretty far ranging front. is very stimulating. It, it really is always giving me ideas and, and energy and drive that I can apply in a very different context. And so there's enough overlap to really appreciate and take from the the other's experience and build on that in what I have been doing. And I've really valued that. It also is, I mean, it's frankly a privilege to live with someone who has the wisdom and the values that are written in The Monk of the Riddle. For those of you who have read that book, um, I mean it really is quite rare I think to have a partner who comes from that perspective who can help you navigate the complexities of life. It is even when you're in the same company for 22 years (laughs) there are always new issues and new challenges and new questions and to have Access to clarity, and and wisdom, has been an incredible blessing for me. You asked if there have been trade-offs. I think there have. Well, (laughs) I mean, I think there have been trade-offs from some people's perspective. We have a fabulous life, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, We're both very active, very independent. We have chosen not to have children. I think it would be difficult for us to both live the lives that we have lived if there were children in the picture. And I think that's a trade-off that is a significant one, but one that's
1: in our case worked very well. Okay. So can I have a rebuttal? First of all, that's that's the nicest thing she's ever said about me. (laughs) No.
0: And we have it on tape. (laughs) (laughs) Can I get the tape?
1: Exactly. (laughs) Thank God. You're going to hear that tape a lot. Um, you know, one thing I've learned living with Deb that, um, about relationships that I think is a really, is really important piece of insight is um, living with somebody who brings back to the relationship more energy, more enthusiasm, just sort of more light rather than taking it, really feeds a relationship. I mean, when you can go to your, to your separate lives and feed and then bring that together and throw that into the mix and throw that energy and excitement and enthusiasm in the mix that makes for a really good relationship really good relationship
0: well i want to close by saying it is fabulous to have both of you in our lives (laughs) and uh, wish you the best of luck with the next chapter in your careers
1: thank you very much
0: Josh, Josh has a presentation. Yeah,
2: we'll here. Yes. So on behalf of the we'd like to thank uh, Rainey and Deborah for coming today. Thank you very
1: much. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you.